We now reach the city of Athens. We've been in the later part of the book of Acts where we've been tracing Paul's second missionary journey where the gospel crosses over continents, crossing over from the Middle East to Europe. So here's a map to help you visualize Paul's second missionary journey. Last week in Acts chapter 16, we were at the city of Philippi. That's indicated by the red dot. And at Philippi, uh, a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer were converted to Christianity, and they were the beginnings of the church in Philippi. The story continues, and Acts chapter 17 tells us that Paul and his companions passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia to get to Thessalonica. Oh, that's a bit of a a mouthful, but he preached the gospel, and there, like in other cities, there were mixed responses. Some Jews were converted, a large number of Greeks were converted, but there were a large number of Jews who were angry at Paul, and they formed a mob to persecute Paul. The new believers at Thessalonica sent Paul and Silas away to uh, Berea. Again, Paul preached the gospel there. Many Gentiles came to faith, and some Jews were upset and angry. Again, the new believers escort Paul out of the city, and he arrives at Athens, and that's indicated by the purple dot. So let me tell you a bit more about Athens. It's no exaggeration that uh, in the first century, Athens was the cultural capital of the ancient world. When we think about culture making, we tend to think in three categories, thought and education, art and politics. These are the key influences that shape uh, what a culture is like. In the world of thought, Athens was the home to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the three most influential philosophers in the history of the world. In the world of art, uh, anyone who studied art would know that the Greek civilization gave us the great works of art in ancient history, uh, and most of it comes from the city of Athens. It's the home of the Parthenon, one of the most iconic buildings in all of history, beloved by art lovers and architects around the world. When we think about politics, Athens was the birthplace of democracy, the first place where anywhere in the world to practice a democratic form of government. Athens was the cultural capital of the ancient world. But when Paul arrived in Athens, the things that caught his eyes wasn't actually all of these amazing cultural spectacles in Athens. What did Paul see in Athens? Well, he saw a city that was full of idols. He saw in the people of Athens that they were deeply religious. And he sees in Athens uh, that all these idol worship across the city and what we see in ancient Athens is actually much like modern-day Sydney. Yes, we could have the debate as to whether Sydney or Melbourne is the cultural capital of Australia, but what is becoming more and more characteristic of the larger cities of Australia is that people are more and more spiritual. So what we see Paul do in Athens is that he preaches the gospel to a very spiritual, very cosmopolitan city, a city where there are many different kinds of gods being worshipped. And there is much that we can learn on how we can share the gospel in our spiritual and highly pluralistic city. 
because in many ways we are still living in Athens. And so we're going to learn the why, the how, and the who of his evangelistic message. The why, the how, and the who. So let's start with the why. In a city like Athens, why would Paul be compelled to speak about the gospel of Jesus? Why is Paul motivated to preach the gospel in Athens? Read with me verse 15. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. When you look at your city, what do you see? When you see our city, do you see just the surface of things like population growth, developments and progress, tech, social, business, infrastructure, good schools, good coffee, or do you see a city full of idols? And when you see the problems in our city, do you just see the surface of things like things like the high cost of living, gentrification, social inequality, increase in mental health issues? Or do you see underneath those deeper problems, those, a problem of deeper worship? As Paul looked around the city of Athens, he saw not just great works of art, not just great architecture, not just a thriving urban city center, he saw idols. If Paul was a panel speaker at one of those urban planning conferences like the Monocle Quality of Life conference on how to create better cities, he will point out that the biggest problems in our city is the problem of idolatry. Perhaps you're thinking, yeah, yeah, but that's ancient Greece. They had a weird way of worshiping. Well, consider the observation of John Stott in his excellent commentary on Acts. He reminds us that idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetedness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth, sex, power, food, alcohol, other drugs, parents, spouse, children, friend, work, education, recreation, television, possessions, and even church, religion, and Christian service. These things can all be idols. Idols always seem particularly dominant in cities. So what are the idols in Sydney? What are the God substitutes in Sydney? Look at back at the verse and you can look at the connection of what he saw and what Paul felt. He said he was greatly distressed. And this word distress is a gritty, visceral kind of word. Paul was disturbed, angered, grieved at worship that rightfully belongs to the Lord Jesus was given to idols. He sees the people were made in the image of God and they were chasing things that are less than God. And this distress for misplaced worship was what motivated him to share the gospel to the people of Athens. Friends, what would our city look like if we, the church, were jealous for the worship and glory of God? Some Christians, they're motivated to share the gospel out of pride. I'm right, you're wrong. 
and you need to agree with me. There are other Christians who are murdered to share the gospel out of fear. People need to be saved, and God will judge me for not doing anything. And there are still other Christians who don't share the gospel out of apathy. But the Christians who make a difference are those who share the gospel with a love for the worship and the glory of God. Those who can't wait another year to see their friends and family sell their souls to their careers, to their Instagram lifestyles, to their own body and image, to a person or a relationship, or to even an unrealistic goal or desire. Chapel Hill, are you distressed about the worship problem in our city? Are you provoked to see more lives bring glory to our risen Lord Jesus? So that's the why. He was greatly distressed, and that's why he was preaching the gospel in Athens. So now we look at the how. How does Paul preach the gospel in this cutting-edge, cosmopolitan, highly spiritual city? To understand how Paul preaches the gospel in Athens, I'm going to share some notes from a lecture that Bob Thune, a pastor in America, gave, and he borrows some insights from philosopher Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor says there are two ways to put forth a point of view. You can offer your point of view as a take or as a spin. And here's the difference. A spin is saying, my point of view is obviously correct, and if you don't agree with me, it's because you're small-minded or you're stupid. It may not be expressed with such strong language, but that is the heart and posture behind it. And you see this all the time in politics. How can anyone not agree that this is the, obviously the right way to see things? Politicians are the master of spin. And when it comes to religion, you see spin used by both fundamentalist Christians and atheists. How can you not see the world that, the way I see it? What are you, small-minded or stupid? And a spin is usually appealing and persuasive only to the people who are already convinced that it is right. So as thoughtful, winsome Christians, spin is not the way to share the gospel. Charles Taylor says, Here's how a take is different. A take says, hey, let me give you my take on things. Why don't you just take my point of view and try it on? Test road it and see if it doesn't answer or resolve the questions or tensions that you have in life. A take is a much more humble approach, and it's actually a much more realistic approach because we all live in the same world, and we're all trying to make sense of the same data and of the same human experiences. So why don't we take a realistic, thoughtful, analytical approach and see which point of view makes better sense of the world we live in and our human experiences? And this was Paul's approach. We read from verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, philosophers began to debate with him. So the first thing we see is that we see how he shares the gospel. We see his manner towards people. He is reasoning. He's creating a dialogue. He's putting forth the Christian point of view, and he's inviting people to interact with it. 
And the two major classes of people in Athens are the Epicureans and the Stoics. So a bit of philosophy 101. The Epicureans are like modern-day deists. They believe that gods, they're remote. They're not involved in human affairs. And everything is due to chance. There's no life beyond death. Therefore, humans should just pursue pleasure. Well, that doesn't sound like anyone you know, right? Well, you think about it, oh yeah, that's actually my next door neighbor. That's your typical Sydney cider. The Stoics, they were like modern day pantheists. God or the divine is in everything and God is everywhere. So we needed to live in harmony with nature and we need to resign ourselves to fate or our personal destiny. Oh yeah, that's the lady down Darling Street, isn't it? These two worldviews are actually well represented today in our city. So these people are hearing Paul preach the gospel and they're inviting debate about Jesus and the Christian worldview. And they're saying, hey, I'm kind of intrigued. I want to hear more. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, which is the city square, a place for discussion and debate. It's hard to find a place like this in Sydney because we've become more and more polarized. But think of a place where vibrant discussion is welcome. Think of Q&A, but in a city town square. So they bring Paul to the Areopagus. Then verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Notice Paul doesn't start by saying you are all pagans and you're going to face God's judgment. You could start there because that is true. But notice he doesn't start there. He starts a place of honor and a start of a place of common ground. He then says, verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You see, Paul finds a point of contact with their culture and uses that as the starting point to share the gospel. He says, hey, I was walking around and I saw this inscription to the unknown God. Well, since you don't know who God is and what he's like, let me tell you more about him. Yes, all idolatry is sin. But all of idolatry also points to the human desire to worship someone. It's one thing to say idolatry is wrong. It's another thing to say that idolatry also points to your desire to know some ultimate meaning, purpose, and relationship. Yes, you might be chasing after the wrong things, but the fact that you are chasing those things is saying something significant to how you are wired to how you are created. So who does Paul preach about? So the who, he preaches about God because the people of Athens are religious. They're spiritual. They believe in God, but they do not know who and what he is like. And so he makes five points about who God is. And because idolatry not only points to sin, but also points to the way that they are created, Paul firstly explains that God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. The world is not by chance. God is not in everything. He is above everything. 
and no temple can contain him. No one can box him in. Secondly, God is the sustainer, verse 25, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breathes and everything else. The breath that you are breathing right now, God is giving it to you. He is the sustainer of all life. Thirdly, God is the ruler, verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inherit inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God is the ruler of all nations. The rise and fall of nations over history, God determined those things because he's the ruler over all the earth. Fourthly, God is Father. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. God is the Father of all mankind. All humans have their origins in God. We are all made in His image. Fifthly, God is Judge. Verse 30, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He closes his speech by saying, God is judge. Every human being is going to give an account to him. And he has fixed a day when he will judge the world with righteousness and justice. And he will do it through his son, Jesus who had died for the forgiveness of sin and raised to be the Lord and judge of all. And so Paul explains and reasons to the, with the people of Athens that God is creator, God is sustainer, God is ruler, God is father, and God is judge. So how did they respond? Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Some rejected the gospel. Some resonated with the gospel. And they said, let me think about it some more. And some believed. Acts 17 shows us how we can be effective witnesses to a city that is cosmopolitan and highly spiritual. So number one, what do we learn from Acts 17? Number one, Acts 17 shows us that it has to start with being provoked by the false worship in our city. It has to start by having a new vision to see the idols in our city. And then seeing that, having a feeling, having a feeling of jealousy of God when worship, glory, and honor goes to worthless idols instead of Him. It starts with being motivated to share the gospel, not out of pride or fear, but a righteous jealousy for true worship to the true God. Number two, Acts 17 shows us we need to find a point of contact, find common ground that gives a place for us to start to share the gospel. And this will be a great discussion point to have in our community groups this week. What common ground, what points of contact can we have with our friends to start a conversation about Jesus? Number three, Acts 17 shows us we need to proclaim the truth about who God is. 
We need to proclaim the fullness of who God is. I don't know if you noticed that in Paul's sermon, he actually barely mentions Jesus. He hints at Jesus as the one who he raised from the dead. But I wonder if you're curious that Paul does not mention the cross of Jesus at all. He doesn't mention the atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. So the question is, why not? It's because in a highly spiritual and pluralistic world, we have to start with God before Jesus makes any sense at all. We have to establish God as creator, sustainer, father, ruler, and judge before people will feel the need for a savior. Because if people are confused about who God is, then Jesus doesn't make any sense to anyone. When people come to see clearly and rightly who God is from the scriptures and through plain reason, what God is like, the reality of sin, the need for a savior becomes more clear. Listen to John Stott again. Many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. People are looking for an integrated worldview, which makes sense of all of their experience. We learn from Paul that we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God. We cannot preach the gospel of the cross without creation. We cannot have salvation without judgment. And today's world needs a bigger gospel, he says, the full gospel of Scripture. The gospel of Jesus is not just about his life, death, and resurrection. The full gospel of Jesus also includes more broadly the nature and character of God. The full gospel is the one that John, says, John Sott says it can give us an integrated worldview. It can make sense of all of our experiences. God has given us his full gospel, and it answers every question anyone has but only when we proclaim it in its fullness. That's why our church's vision is to be a place where people find the fullness of God in Jesus. Please pray with me for God to fulfill His vision for our church. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you reveal to us that you are our creator that you sustain our every breath, that you are ruler of this world, that nothing in history has happened without your sovereign rule. And we thank you that one day you will come as our judge to bring about righteousness and justice. But Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to offer us who are idolaters, mercy and grace, so that we would be forgiven of our idolatrous hearts, of our sinful ways, so that we might be adopted into your kingdom as your children and cry out to you, Abba, Father. Father, we pray that you will fulfill your vision and mission for our church for people to come to know the fullness of who God is so that they might recognize their need for Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that many will believe. 
we pray that you empower our church to be provoked to share the gospel, not out of pride and not out of fear, but a righteous jealousy to see more and more true worshippers of the true and living God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.